1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the show all about zoo archaeology. And today with you is me as always, Simona
1: Falanga, and with me, Alex Fitzpatrick. Yeah, and uh,
2: in this episode, we're carrying on with our mini-series, which uh, we've titled Where in the World, where we sort of try to deviate a bit from British zoo archaeology, which uh, we do tend to fossilise ourselves onto a bit much, but uh, bear with us, uh, we're both working British archaeology. But but thanks to this mini-series, we've been trying to look at various different world regions, and today
1: we'll be covering Oceania. The previous episodes, we've kind of broken down by continent and Oceania isn't really a continent, but it is a region which does consist of Australasia, which is Australia and New Zealand. Melanesia, which includes Fiji, Vanuatu, and uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, Micronesia, which includes the Marshall Islands, the Caroline Islands, the Gilbert Islands, and the Mariana Islands. And Polynesia, which includes Hawaii, Samoa, Rapa Nui, aka Easter Island, and Tonga. And we also want to note. Now, occasionally throughout this episode, we will be referring to Aboriginal dreaming or dreamtime stories. These terms refer to Aboriginal cosmologies and beliefs that uh, often describe how things came into being. So they're they're commonly referred to as dreaming or dreamtime stories. And that will be peppered in, uh, as it's obviously extremely important to discussing animals in this region. And then the relationship they, they had with its inhabitants. I guess we will start, as always.
2: For the first part of the show, we'll be covering the wild taxa that are native to this region, and then we're going to be moving on to domesticated species. And right at the end, in the third installment,
1: as always, we'll be covering our case studies. Yeah, so we might as well start off with some of the wild species that are native to this region, and we will start off with the North Island brown kiwi. Apteryx mantelli. I'm not even being prompted now. I'm just doing it. I, I wasn't sure if you were stumped. There's some, uh, some difficult ones in this episode, from what I can see. So, uh, but yeah, so it's a subspecies of the kiwi. The North Island brown kiwi is, well, unsurprisingly, found on the North Island of New Zealand. However, ancient DNA research has shown that they were actually ones much more widespread throughout New Zealand. In addition, a DNA work or ancient DNA work uh, undertaken in 2011 on over 100 Kahu Kiwi. Uh, which are cloaks that are made out of kiwi feathers, are worn primarily by Maori uh, leaders. The ADNA work actually indicated that they were predominantly made using North Island brown kiwi feathers, which has been interpreted to mean that it was likely the North Island of New Zealand was probably an area with substantial kaha'u kiwi production. It should also be noted, because it's it's a nice fun fact, that apparently the North Island Brown Kiwi holds the record for the largest egg laid in proportion to its size, and that makes my body hurt just thinking about it.
2: Sure, that's just me when I've had too much food, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it's a very tiny bird, and then you look at the egg, and you're like, oh boy, <sighs> my goodness. But yeah, no, and also the ADNA work is really interesting. The idea—it's something that I've always been really interested in, and I've had some potential projects in the back burner in terms of using ADNA work and Zoom, uh, Zoom-S, which is uh, Zooarchology by Mass Spectrometry. Sorry about that. Uh, forgot for a second. We've talked about these two techniques before in the past as a very kind of more common nowadays scientific approaches to zooarchaeology and looking at species identification but I'm really interested in that using that on things that are you know in collections in museums that are we we definitely know are from animal remains but maybe aren't necessarily sure of the species so it's cool that they were able to identify it down to subspecies. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because it's something that you just would not be
2: able to do. Like you can use all the morphology and the biometry in the world, but for certain things you, you have to use DNA. Yeah,
1: especially with feathers. I mean, it's really cool. And yeah, so I think maybe we'll move on from little kiwi birds to something maybe a bit more iconic.
2: Oh, absolutely iconic. I mean, arguably, I mean, it was, I guess, one of the symbols of Australia, which is the Queensland koala, Tascolartus cinereus Adustus.
1: Wow, I thought you were going to get tripped up by that one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So the Queensland koala is found throughout Eastern and Southern Australia. And of course, you know, it is uh, one of the most iconic Australian mammals, perhaps only second to kangaroos. But, uh, you know, while they're very popular today, I mean, they have always been prevalent within, within indigenous Australian culture and occasionally fe- featured in indigenous art and iconography. Fun fact, they are often referred to as koala bears, except bears, they are not. And they are, in fact, marsupials. <laughs> because I am very, very keen on fun facts today. They also have the smallest brains in proportion to their bodies. Big mood. Relatable. If you want to go down the fun fact road, I believe they also like only feed on eucalyptus leaves. Mm. Big mood. <laughs> uh, I mean, not not me. I'd, uh, I'd rather not feed solely on, on eucalyptus leaves. But yeah, I guess one of the most interesting recent uses of koala remains, sort of like going back to the archaeology, has been in genomics research, utilizing koala skins in museum collections, sort of like tying into what you were talking about earlier. And this allowed scientists to recreate the evolution of particular retrovirus that may be potentially damaging to koala populations today.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting research. I think this episode has a lot of interesting uh, genetic and adna research that we'll be talking about and it's also nice to have an example i don't think we get to talk about it a lot but there are a lot of examples of archaeology and zoo archaeology being used and applied to more present day issues especially when it comes to archaeology with conservation
2: That's exactly what I was going to say, because while it is clearly very interesting to learn about the past and past the human-animal interactions, clearly we wouldn't be here otherwise, to be able to produce a piece of research that can actually have a positive impact on the ecology of a certain species,
1: that that's just the big plus, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I I think we'll move on to the next one, which is, I think someone is very interested in hearing or potentially talking about the platypus. Ornithorhynchus anatinus. It's mostly found in Eastern Australia, and it's also possibly most known for being one of five mammalian species that can lay eggs. The other four being various uh, inchina. species now there's one aboriginal dreamtime story which describes how the platypus originates from a duck which was abducted by a water rat and eventually gave birth to platypuses platy, platy, platypus platypuses via egg Another Dreamtime story describes how the platypus, in being asked by the birds, the marsupials, and the fish to join their respective families, declines all of them as it wants to remain friends with all of them, as it shares traits with each group. And these are such great stories. It's so instructive of a platypus, because, yeah, a platypus is kind of... It's all those things, isn't it? Can we just stop about it for a minute and think how wild
2: that is because it's still like because I've known that platypus were oviparous like for, for a long time but it's just just something you can't quite wrap your head around like a mammal that lays eggs and it's like, what? what oh nature
1: and it's it and it's like a duck but it's also like a little rodent
2: yeah what great and also yeah I, I, I do really <laughs> like uh the, the dreamtime stories like especially so the last one like the platypus just wants to get along with everyone,
1: so it won't choose. Yeah, it's very, it's very sweet. So uh, maybe not slightly, not as sweet, maybe, but it's still important to talk about how the platypus was also important because it provided a lot of nutrients for Aboriginal peoples who did hunt the platypus. For food, as their tails are actually particularly very fatty, but unfortunately, once European colonial settlers arrived, they were mostly hunted for their fur by the Europeans. And unfortunately, to make matters worse, as colonial era science, natural science progressed, uh, many of These platypuses were also captured and killed for dissection of their reproductive systems because obviously that was extremely intriguing to the Europeans and as well as they were captured for their eggs. And unfortunately, that will be another bit of a through line in this episode with regards to colonial science kind of wrecking a bit of havoc in the Australian and uh, larger oceanic regions.
2: To, to to move from the the sad sad state of affairs we have another fun fact although that it's not that fun really from our a, a, a producer tristan who's uh whispering from the sidelines that the platypus is also one of the few living mammals to produce venom
1: the other mammal being me <laughs> <laughs>
2: And we'll move back to iconic Australian mammals. Uh, And uh, this time, you know, we've we've covered the koala. And of course, we felt like we had to cover the red kangaroo, Osfranter rufus, just to make you like sure, you know, it's the red one, rufus, the red one, which is the (laughs) largest kangaroo, the largest Australian terrestrial mammal, and the largest existing marsupial. So, yes, much like the koala, the icon of Australia. At present day, the red kangaroo is found throughout Western and Central Australia. And interestingly, one of the most important archaeological contributions that red kangaroo have made are modern ones through... Not ADNA this time, but isotopic analysis of modern kangaroo and wallaby populations. Archaeologists have actually been able to identify correlations between the isotopic variability and ecological change, which can then be applied and reused to recreate Australian paleo
1: environments. Yeah, a lot of uh, science in this episode, for sure. It's really interesting. And I guess it's also there's so much biodiversity and very specific types of species in the oceanic region. that I guess it's not surprising that there's a lot of really interesting science going on.
2: Yeah, if you don't hear me talking, it's just my brain is melting
1: from all the science. It's a bit hot, is it? Oh, it's, oh, from the science, it's also a bit hot. Um, so I will continue to bring down the mood then with our final <laughs> example, which I feel like we had to talk about because it's very important, even if it's very sad, and it's the thylacine. The phylocinus chinocephalus. So probably the icon, we were talking about icons this episode, and sadly this, the thylacine is probably the icon for human-influenced extinctions the thylacine was the largest marsupial carnivore prior to its untimely extinction in about 1936. It was found widely throughout Australia and Tasmania at one point, but eventually it was horrifically vilified by European settlers who claimed that the thylacine were killing their sheep and their livestock. So between this kind of vilification and the desire... Spoiler. by a- they didn't. No, they, they didn't. Um, hmm, yeah. Um, why would they lie? Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> the, so between that kind of vilification and the desire by natural history and zooarchaeological, not zooarchaeological, sorry, zoological garden collectors, you know, the, the precursors to the modern day zoos, to have the specimens of their own bounties made the capture and or killing of phylocenes a pretty lucrative business. So, there were bounties also put for just killing thylacine because, again, there was this propaganda that they were killing sheep and livestock. Now, the last thylacine was a captive named Benjamin held at the Hobart Zoo in Tasmania, who sadly died in 1936. But there's still alleged sightings of thylacines in the wild, although none of them have really been confirmed. So, maybe they're out there. We don't know. I mean, hopefully, but I think it's for one sad. of those things that it's a.
2: It's better to think about. It's better to think that, in spite of all sort of the yeah. oppression and slaughter of this beautiful animal, oh, but maybe it survived and it's still out there. It's probably a much better thought to reconcile with than no, we have obliterated this animal.
1: Yeah, I know that occasionally hotshots will post like massive bounties for evidence of a thylacine and uh, you know and we will cover this in the next part but there is a species that looks a bit similar to the thylacine that a lot of these sightings tend to be but yeah i guess there's a lot of lot of hope and optimism maybe that uh, they've escaped this uh, horrible fate and they're just chilling as far away from humans as possible which i don't blame them so with that extremely depressing thought i think we'll take a break and we'll 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 Hopefully chip uh, get, get a bit chipper again and start our next section after this.
3: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Back with Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. In this episode, we're talking about the zooarchaeology of Oceania as part of our mini-series, Where in the World? And now we will be talking about the domesticated species that are normally found in this region and kind of touching upon what we just talked about, though not as sad this time. But I guess a Somewhat similar in appearance species is the dingo. Yeah. Canis familiaris dingo. So it's a bit, calling it domesticated may be a bit of a stretch. They are technically feral, but dingoes are canids that are found primarily in Australia. And they are a basal or ancient canine breed, which I think we've talked about in a previous episode. Might have done,
2: yeah. Because I mean, I guess in theory it is a subspecies of the domestic dog because it is Canis familiaris, which is called the the scientific name for the domestic dog. But then it's got the dingo at the end of it, so
1: it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit confusing though. Because obviously, you know, we know that they are they are domestic or at least descendants from you know canids, and but they are. Their origins are not really understood, which I mean, it's kind of the case for a lot of these domestication things, isn't it? We're still kind of in the last maybe decade, we've only just started to really understand some of the domestication origins of a lot of these very common species.
2: Yeah. And again, probably going back to they probably descend to from various domestication events in various locations, which I'm afraid is going to be like the broken record for most of the domesticates that we cover on the podcast as a whole. (laughs) I mean, guess we we can class the dingo as a domesticate, because I mean, unless any sort of recent scientific studies prove otherwise, even though they are feral, so in a way, sort a domesticate that's sort of gone back into the wild in, in a feral state. They've clearly not changed enough to warrant us a speciation of any kind.
1: No. So, yeah, it's a bit... I mean, the real confusion is obviously where did they originate from? They were definitely brought to Australia around 8,000 years ago. But it's not clear as to... Where they've originated, there's been research looking at the fact that you cannot find dingo remains before a certain point. The Clearly, they must have been brought here. The main hypothesis is it's, it's likely somewhere in Asia, which kind of makes sense. A lot of the domesticates that we do have, they did originate from Asia. But again, where in Asia, it's still not completely clear. So there's still a lot of genetic research that needs to be done to kind of clear that up but it between hybridization and you know crossbreeding and as simona said domestication isn't necessarily just a one-time event it could happen in multiple places obviously i think in our cat episode we talked a bit about how the cat has basically been domesticated twice so it's not as cut and dry as i think we would like it to be (laughs) So maybe in a couple of years, five, ten years from now, we might have a better idea as to where the dingo actually fits in the the lineage, I guess.
2: Yeah, I guess like it it must have been brought, because of course, like Australia and New Zealand are sort of abundant in marsupial animals. Also, like one of the main reasons is because they've not been exposed to sort of placental mammals. Is that the term? I'm blanking.
1: Yeah. They've
2: not been exposed to them. They've not been exposed to sort of placental mammals as much, because in a way, like, uh, it has been shown that, you know, as uh, uh, other mammals were introduced to Australia, the native sort of marsupial species greatly suffered from that competition. And it is indeed like the case going back to the thylacine. The thylacine was also... Uh, I think even before uh, colonials got there, was somewhat struggling from sort of competition from the dingo. So they, they, they were brought. They were brought from somewhere by someone. Is, is the my scientific take?
1: Well, yeah, and clearly they were brought by humans, and that's impacted the way that their relationship with humans have been since then. Despite their feral status, dingoes have basically lived alongside humans in what's likely more of a commensal relationship rather than one of complete, you know, cut and dry domestication. So in other words, dingoes do benefit from association with humans, but they don't actually require us To survive nor does this relationship harm either species and this kind of relationship with humans is well documented especially in prehistoric evidence we have with dingoes and aboriginal peoples and it's not only evident in the various depictions of dingoes in rock art but also there have been some instances of burials of dingoes which share some similarities in Human burial tradition. So obviously, there is at least enough of importance to warrant that sort of careful burial. So regardless of whether or not the dingo was ever, you know, truly, truly domesticated or even tamed, it was clearly held in some regard by Aboriginal peoples, and there's still that kind of relationship which exists till today. Yeah, and moving to one that you wouldn't expect is the
2: dwarf cassowary, <laughs> Casuarius benetti also known as the little cassowary or the mountain cassowary i know
1: (laughs) it's so cute (laughs) if you look up any other cassowary species they are horrifying terrifying little murder machines and i believe that there is like countless cases of violence by larger cassowaries towards humans but the dwarf cassowary is very cute, and I just wanted to, to give a little shout-out. It's just so tiny and adorable. Just,
2: yeah. So little, with its little blue and pink head. Oh. But yes, the cassowary is the, the, the smallest uh, of the cassowary species, as you would expect, which are a species of ratite bird. That being, um, they are flightless, and they also don't have a keel on their sternum, which is a bit of... The bone that, unsurprisingly, perhaps, looks like the keel of a boat. Could it be? Why it's called the keel? Oh, who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Yes, that will be similar to emus or ostriches. Now, the dwarf cassowary is found predominantly throughout New Guinea, as well as some of the surrounding islands. During the late Pleistocene and Holocene, cassowary bones were potentially used for tool production. So, um, examples being cassowary well, in particular, which are mostly made of the tibiotarsus, which unfortunately are not very commonly recovered in the archaeological record, so they're not really entirely understood at present. But now, because I'm sure there'll be people going, okay, but I thought we were talking about domesticated species, so what's with this little cassowary? But ha, there has been relatively recent (laughs) research which indicates that cassowaries may have been at least semi-domesticated by humans 18,000 years ago, which would pre- would make it predate chicken domestication. I have to stop myself from banging my hand on the table. <laughs> That's my my point-making stance. <laughs> so while adult cassowaries were likely hunted as well, There has been newly recovered evidence that suggests that eggs were potentially collected by humans. And granted, some of that might have been for, you know, the obvious, eating. However, there may have also been an attempt to hatch the eggs for themselves, for domestication. But, you know, so this research is still relatively new. So, you know, there still need to be sort of additional analysis and evaluation stages. But the potential of this is, is very exciting indeed.
1: Yeah, no, it's extremely interesting. It's, I think, only like a year or two out in publication. So it's extremely new research. It it would kind of shake up our conceptions of domestication, at least avian domestication as well. So stay tuned. Maybe maybe we'll learn more about what is the, I guess, the pre-chicken. Speaking of the pre-chicken our last example is kind of i mean it's in the same the same genus it's the green jungle fowl gallus varius and it's also known as the javan jungle fowl or the fork tail the green jungle fowl is one of four jungle fowl species the others being the red jungle fowl, the Sri Lankan jungle fowl, and the grey jungle fowl. Now today, green jungle fowl are often bred in captivity due to the potential loss of genetic diversity. But there has been, again, some relatively recent advances in genetic studies of galliforms and the complexity of chicken domestication, which we've talked about previously previously on this podcast it is always kind of in the news in terms of discovering new things obviously here in the uk finding the first chicken and the earliest chicken has been a massive project and yeah so there's been recent advances in genetic studies that have indicated that maybe is not as cut and dry as we thought obviously we kind of view the red jungle fowl as the primary you know ancestor of the chicken i i think even charles darwin is the original guy who uh, singled out the the red jungle fowl as the wild ancestor of the the domesticated chicken but it may be a not as cut and dry as we thought. There may have been a bit more hybridization and crossbreeding along the way. And that may potentially include the green jungle fowl as well as the the gray jungle fowl. And this kind of crossbreeding may have been seen in the various chicken breeds that we have, the variety and skins and things like that. So it's extremely interesting. And even today, a lot of these jungle fowl are crossbred with chickens. So there is modern day precedent for it. So it's it's not completely out of the question that it may have potentially happened a bit more in the past. So again, some really interesting research that in the next couple of years, maybe we'll have a bit more concrete stuff, but we'll see. I think, again, this episode has been a, somehow a, a secret archaeological sciences episode <laughs> that there just seems to be a lot of really recent uh, research being done in genetics and adna work in the oceanic region and again you know a lot of these sciences have only kind of recently been picked up and and really focused on you know in the last few decades so it's not that surprising but the fact that it can shake up our conceptualization of some domesticated species is huge, for sure.
2: Oh, absolutely!
1: So, just have to keep our ears out. Yeah, and hey, I didn't do like five different versions of cattle this episode. I just did two birds instead. <laughs> I'm sure we can we can uh, rectify that. <laughs> It's a bit hard, I guess, because obviously a lot of what we've been talking about with Australia are this introduced species and things like that. So a lot of the, the domesticates happen to be, you know, species we've talked about that have been brought over. So, you know, we just get a little creative, folks.
2: Yeah, I guess, yeah, we won't be able to um discuss at length all the various cattle breeds. But to be fair, a lot of the them are sort of European, and uh, oh, oh no, the, the producer yeah. is whispering, "Quiet, everyone!"
3: Yeah, well, what, what was the big, one? got that cattle called? Do you know that big one, Do you know the massive one. Got a funny name.
2: Ah, the big cattle with a funny name. I can think of one breed of cattle that's got massive horns, but I think that's ah, it's mostly found in North America. And I also called it the No, it was, name.
3: yeah. No, it was like a nickname given to the cattle.
1: From the last episode?
3: No, no, no.
2: Oh, no,
1: no, no. That, that was from episode. a while ago. Oh. Oh. Oh, no. I can't remember, folks.
3: I wasn't trying to catch out here. It wasn't by any chance Nickers, was it?
1: Yes. Yes, it's Knickers. Oh,
2: yeah. Six- <gasps> How can I forget? Six feet, four inches tall and weighing, weighing just over 1.4 tons.
3: Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. See, even though it's not meant to be in the episode, we still managed to bring the cattle in.
1: We haven't brought Romans in, though. So. Mm.
3: <laughs> but just saying. We could talk about cattle until the cows come home.
1: Boom. But maybe
3: it's better if we go... <laughs> If there's anything else in this segment or we can go to the
1: case. studies. We need to go is- to the next one. Bad jokes, bad segment. Just go to the next one. We'll see after the break, folks.
3: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: And we are back with Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. And today we've been talking about the zooarchaeology of Oceania. And as always, we are at the allegedly best part of the show, the case studies. And I think we are going to start with the zooarchaeology of Rapa Nui, also known by some people as Easter Island. Now Rapa Nui is probably most n- known for the moai which are these series of giant monolithic statues of humans that are actually made primarily from volcanic ash and although in popular culture people have referred to them as you know the Easter Island heads excavations have actually shown that most of the statues are of m- predominantly full bodies. They're not just the heads. Now, Rapa Nui is kind of the center of a lot of debate with regards to the potential ecological and socio-cultural collapse of the Polynesian inhabitants prior to the arrival of European colonists. Again, kind of that beam of the importance of conservation and using the oceanic regions as kind of sites of a lot of scientific analysis and projects centering this idea of looking at biodiversity and conservation. So Rapa Nui has always kind of been seen as this center, potentially, of a a past example of uh, ecological collapse. However, It should be noted that environmental archaeology has shown that mass deforestation definitely occurred at some point in the past. Interestingly, one of the the theories for why deforestation may have occurred is actually centered on the arrival of an invasive species, the Pacific rat. Ratus exulans thank you, <laughs> who were originally brought over by the Polynesians and was thought to have aided in this rapid deforestation through devouring the nuts from the Rapa Nui palm. Pascaloco costisperta. Always knowing your cue. <laughs> uh, are, are, you, are you proud of me? I am proud. And that was a plant name, too, which I don't think we've actually done, so... Exciting. Welcome to Archaeoplans. <laughs> archaeobotany? <laughs> archaeoplans. Anyway, um archaeoplans, yeah. I I said Archaeobotany and then realized, well, our podcast isn't called zoo archaeology, so why would I say that? Welcome to zoo. <laughs> well, there is, you know, there are many places in the world where it's called archaeozoology, which sounds wrong. Sorry, folks.
2: Well, ask your zoo, I think it'll catch the mood, because this show does feel like a zoo a lot of the times.
1: Yeah, and the animals are loose, baby. Anyway, (laughs) to get back to the case study. So the Pacific rat potentially may have aided in deforestation because it just devoured the nuts from the Rapa Nui palm, leaving none for actual regrowth. However, revaluation of the evidence, which I believe most of the evidence has been kind of half in nature. It's not, it's a little doubt of that being the main reason. Uh, and, um, you know, there's also, in general, kind of doubt as to whether or not the kind of collapse is as massive as people make it out to be. So, you know, unsurprisingly, kind of moving on from that, The isotopic analysis of human remains from Rapa Nui has indicated that, you know, of course, more or at least half of their diet of the prehistoric inhabitants was marine based. And again, they were on an island, so not that surprising, although there's a fair amount that was also based on, you know, root crops and things like that. So not just marine food, but a good portion for sure. And chickens were also consumed, having been introduced to the island by the Polynesians. Now, Rapa Nui itself is actually a really interesting example of introduced species in a relatively isolated space. And I think that's why the debate over the potential collapse has become so heated as many who argue that there was a massive ecological and sociocultural collapse often use Rapa Nui as a case study due to these kind of unique characteristics that it's it's isolated, that's populated by many invasive species, that there's evidence of deforestation and all that. But there's been more evidence coming up, especially in the last couple of years, that suggests that despite all this deforestation, there wasn't as much of a dramatic collapse as was like the theorize so you know the, the debate just continues and this is just a little thing i wanted to bring up because i've realized i don't think we've we really don't talk about turtles but uh yeah with regards to animal symbolism sea turtles were actually probably a very important part of prehistoric Rapa Nui culture as turtle bones have been found buried alongside human remains they've been used as a, a motif in various artworks that have been found and it was actually a pretty impo- important component to ornamental wear. so I think we got to talk about turtles more well if people are interested we
2: could do a whole episode on turtles why not one hour of turtles.
1: <laughs> if you're interested, as always, let us know. Because I don't think we we really haven't covered reptiles and amphibians and little things like that.
2: We really haven't. We really should. So reptiles, amphibians. Uh, to be fair, would we? Um, um, would we cover insects? So they're, they're, they are animals. But we've talked about the grain weevil. Yes, but leave poor General Sitophilus granadius alone. <laughs> he's, he's resting. He's had a
1: hard week. <laughs> Thieving your grain. <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, again, we kind of talk a lot about what we know. And I mean, that's why this mini series has been a great excuse for us to kind of get out of our, our comfort zone and talk about loads of species that we really don't talk about at all unless it's a species that the romans took back with them which to be fair was a lot so not as much not as much that we haven't talked about maybe than we thought but still
2: yeah no, it, it'll be good it's something i'll definitely be covering in the future also because these species like particular amphibians and reptiles so they have such sort of niche environments that they live in that they're very helpful for paleoenvironmental reconstruction, which is something else we should cover. But I guess enough about things we should cover, and back to things that we have already planned to cover. Second case study (laughs) is the zooarchaeology of Coody Springs. Coody Springs, Australia, is a Pleistocene site located in New South Wales. And now like okay technically we're pushing a little bit into paleontology here as the site is probably most well-known for being, well, one of the most renowned sites in Australia, given the representation of extinct megafauna that was uncovered from these from the context there. Now, uh, there's going to be a, a series of mouthfuls, because um, <laughs> there's a lot of species names in this. <laughs> I think Alex wishes to test me. So the megafauna found on the site included, but it's not limited to, Macropus giganteus titan an extinct species of kangaroo that is the likely ancestor of Macropus giganteus, the grey kangaroo. Genioris neutoni, also known as the thunderbird, or Mihirung, which was a giant extinct bird species. Dibrotodon, a giant marsupial whose closest living ancestor probably going to be wombats and koalas. Cenurus andersoni, another extinct kangaroo species. Procoptodon. Another extinct kangaroo genus. Oh. Um, Protemnodon. Okay, not a kangaroo, but another extinct marsupial megafauna, just kind of similar to wallabies. And the Paludirex, formerly known as palimnarcus, but has recently been categorized since 20, 2020 due to a revaluation of their taxonomy, this being an extinct Jesus genus genus... <laughs> of Kangaroo, no crocodile. Giant Jeez. crocodile. Although excavations were first uh, started... Uh, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Thank you. Although excavations at Kudi Springs were first mounted by Europeans in the late 19th century, Aboriginal Dreamtime stories regarding the fossils found at the site had already been noted. These findings, however, at least added further confirmation to the connections to the land and then later archaeological research undertaken at the site has been done in collaborations with local Aboriginal communities. Perhaps the most important thing recovered at the site, or the, the most important bit of evidence, is that flaked stone tools were found in situ alongside the remains of the megafauna which has led to the debate of whether or not Coody Springs represents proof of human like slash megafauna coexistence or interaction, which in a way makes it archaeological and hence why it is here. There you go. Boom. I mean, archaeologists did originally, who originally excavated the site did theorize that it was once a site of human occupation in the late Pleistocene where megafauna would have been utilized as a resource. So something i will be more interesting to hear about in the future as well. Well, because uh, there are, as you as you may suspect, again another one of the running themes. There are arguments against this uh, theory of human animal interaction that are mostly based on sort of the interpretation of stratigraphy uh, matrices. So the debate continues because the collective noun for archaeologists should be an argument.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. I mean, of course, it's archaeologists who their main argument would be based on stratigraphical interpretation, which, to be fair, still hurts my brain sometimes to look at a a Harris Matrix and think about that. So don't blame him, really.
2: Oh, no, I love me a good Harris Matrix. Just give me recuts and just intercutting features and just oh no,
1: I like me a good Matrix. So, how would you? What are your feelings about this debate? Do you think it has merit? Obviously, we're not looking at the Harris Matrix itself, but
2: that's the thing. It's hard to tell without looking at the Matrix. Because I mean, if the the megafauna is found in the same context as the lithic, but then again, ah. Uh, I don't know, because that's also something that's outside of my expertise, because you wouldn't have sort of the matrices as I know them, because we're talking about uh, uh, sort of a a site far removed into prehistory, which, of course, won't have any archaeological features as we know them, sort of even in later prehistory. Because, of course, there wouldn't have been, there would have been little to no farming at the time. So there wouldn't be formal, like, negative features as we know them. So... Probably even if I looked at the Matrix, oh, that, oh, that would be a, a head scratcher.
1: Yeah, you're you sounding like your brain's melting a bit thinking it through. Yeah, because of course, like the one thing about these uh,
2: prehistoric sites, I mean, normally that like, you would identify them, so you go down through the horizons, be like, oh, Flint Scatter of course it's not what you tend to find in sites from sort of the, not necessarily the later prehistoric period, but going into the Neolithic sort of with the introduction um, of agriculture and it becoming widespread as a sustenance strategy, you tend to find sort of what are known as the negative features of people sort of purposely digging into the ground, whether it's for a rubbish pit or whether it's for a boundary ditch or a variety of like drainage ditches and cultivation systems or like, Dwellings of which, like, more often than not, you won't get the dwelling per se because they'll be made out of timber and usually won't preserve very well. But you might get some sort of the drainage gully going around the building. But of course, something as early as that, you're not gonna get much in the way of that. I think you're spiraling, it's an argument of archaeologists, so you're meant to spiral, debate, talk, discuss. <laughs>
1: No, it's, um, it's one of those things where if you think too hard about it, your brain starts going into pretzels, trying to, to to argue around itself. It's one of those things where I do like the big questions sometimes. This isn't even a big question. It's, it's about stratigraphy, but even then, it hurts my brain sometimes to think about it. What can I say? Send us matrices. <laughs> Please don't. Please don't send us matrices. I don't want to see them. Send them to Simona. (laughs) Or send them to Tristan. He's been through enough. (laughs) Anyway, I, I promise you we will not do an episode on matrices. Maybe that will be a bonus episode. Simona does by herself where she just talks about matrices and how much she loves them. And I stay as far away from that recording as possible. And I think we have reached the end of the episode when we're talking this long about Harris matrices. So as always, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. So while you're there, you know, tell your friends to follow or subscribe to us, leave a review because that always helps us out. You can also find us at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash animals. When you're over there, think about becoming a member that supports all of us. And there's loads of shows on the network of all different archaeologists who are, are funnier and smarter than us. And you can listen to them instead. Although, I guess we are uniquely funny and smart. We talk about Harris matrices. And follow us on Twitter, at ArchaeoAnimals. Let us know if, for some weird reason you want an episode on Harris Matrices. I won't do it, but hey, maybe Savona will. And I think that's it. Yeah. See you next time. See ya.
2: Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts, and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
3: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Laura Johnson.
1: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at Network.
3: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks?